Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. Tonight, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to tell you a story about two paintings. Two paintings. It's the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And I thought this was the message that I was going to preach was something actually very different from this passage. We, we went over this passage in one of our Wednesday morning Bible studies, and I was like, oh, you know what? I think I'm just going to preach this on Sunday. And so I started having a look at this, and God messed me up. Because he goes, no, this is, this is just an arrow pointing to what I actually have to say to you, speaking of me, and to the church as well, too. And I, to be honest, one of the hardest parts about being a preacher sometimes is knowing what's just for me and what's for the church, you know, because sometimes God just speaks things to me because he's wanting to show me something about me, and other times he's wanting to show the church. And so um, what I thought this was about, he kind of pointed me from this into a different direction. I hope I'm not confusing you right now, but I'm just saying sometimes you think you go in looking for one thing and God messes you up, and I love it when God messes me up. I love it. I love it. I love it when he takes my plans and goes, hey, that looks great. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm like, all right, good. I've gotten used to that, and I'm comfortable with it, and it's good. But what I want to share with you about two paintings begins in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul writes, I beg that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. What's Paul saying? Some people who are Christians, this is a a letter to Christians, live by the standard of the world, and Paul is about to light into them. Paul's not lighting into them because of sin. He's not lighting into them because they didn't give enough money. He's about to light into some people because they're still living by the standard of the world. And then he goes on and says, For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. Somebody say divine power. To demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension. We demolish arguments and every pretension that does not agree with our political viewpoint. Just checking to see if you're reading along. We demolish arguments and every... every, I'm going to get this word right in Jesus' name. We demolish arguments and every pretension that does not like the same football team that we like. No. What arguments and pretensions are we fighting against, that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. I would love it if we as the church can separate our opinion from the knowledge of God. Opinions are great. Everybody's got one. I have really strong ones, but they're not necessarily the knowledge of God. 
And I don't have divine power to convince people that cycling is the best sport ever known to man. I have divine power, but it's not for that. I haven't even been able to convince my own wife of this case. God does not give us divine power to win human arguments. God does not give us divine power to convince people that our way is the right way. He gives us divine power to demolish every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. I pray we would know the difference. I really do. Because we could end up spinning our wheels about things that have nothing to do with the knowledge of God. Now, we know that this word knowledge doesn't just mean head knowledge. Like, I, I know where the book of Romans is, but I know Rummy Ritter. You see the difference? One is a head knowledge and one is an experiential knowledge. When the Bible talks about here, epignosis, the knowledge of God, it's referring to the experiential knowledge of God. It's referring to a relationship. So we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, the relationship with God that we're meant to have. So anything that gets in the way of people having a relationship with God, those are the arguments that we destroy. You follow me? And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Now here's what he's saying. You are judging by appearances. Other translations say you're judging just by outward appearances. You are looking at the things that are around you, but you're only judging it by what appears on the outside. And he says, this is not our fight. Our fight is not over who's president or what bill is passed in the Virginia legislature. Those may be important fights, but they're not our ultimate fight. Our fight is against anything that sets itself up from the knowledge of God. Our fight is anything that keeps people out of a relationship with Jesus. That's why you have divine power. And I'm amazed sometimes when you read about the Apostle Paul, there's a lot of fights that he didn't get involved with. Paul told slaves to obey their masters. Wait, what? Could you imagine telling somebody that in today's culture? Why? Paul, are you pro-slavery? No. He just says, that's not a fight that I'm going to get involved in at this time. What's more important is that both slave and master come into the kingdom of God. Because in heaven, there ain't no slavery. And although it's an injustice here on this earth, there are things that are even more important than correcting earthly injustice. And we all know slavery is wrong. Don't, don't hear me wrong here. Horrible injustice. But Paul understood what the real fight was about. It was for the heart's of God's people. It was, it was that lost sons and daughters would come home. Because it's funny how when you allow God to change the heart, the circumstances of life just change as well. Amen? Is that com confrontational enough for you? Okay. So he talks about these, these weapons. Our weapons are not of this world. So you're faced with worldly weapons. And worldly weapons, they defeat man. A, a natural weapon is for a 
natural battle. But divine weapons demolish strongholds. Strongholds. Do you know what strongholds are? It's anything that's got a strong hold. And I think what we fail to forget sometimes is sometimes the conflicts that you're facing in life, maybe even the difficulty at work or the difficulty in our political system is not with people. It's with the strongholds that have been developed in their life. And so our, our job is to demolish the stronghold, not to demolish the people that think differently to the way we do. And so what God's called us to do is to use this divine power to demolish strongholds. And that's a much bigger fight. The King James Version, when it says demolish strongholds, it actually says cast down imaginations. Isn't that cool? We cast down imaginations. 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 Can I tell you that imagination is a, is, a, is a miraculous thing? God gives us an imagination. And imagination is actually one of the primary means that God speaks to us. Do you know what I hear a lot as people are starting to begin this journey of wanting to hear from God for themselves? They say, well, I, I think I just imagined that. I said, yeah. Where do you think that came from? Well, my mind. And who gave you the mind? Well, God did. So then if God gave you your mind, could God have given you your imagination? Well, yeah, I guess so. Well, is it possible that God is actually communicating to you through your imagination? You think, I just imagined it. Well, where did that come from? Everything has a source. And God can speak to you through your imagination. My own kids have gotten dreams and visions of stuff. And they were using their imagination and they have described very vivid spiritual things that they have actually seen as little kids. And I just, they didn't know anything of the Bible really much at all because they were too young, but they were describing spiritual things. They were describing heaven. They were describing spiritual battles and, and spiritual warfare between angels and demons. And one of them actually thought, you know what? I just described something I saw in a cartoon somewhere. I'm like, who's to say God couldn't have communicated to you a kingdom through truth through a cartoon? God uses our imagination to communicate to us. But that doesn't mean everything we imagine is from God. Because you know who else wants to use our imagination to communicate with us? The enemy, Satan. You ever heard that term when something captures your imagination? Captures, captures. Oh, that really caught my imagination. Well, that's what the enemy tries to do. The enemy tries to take God's method of communication and hijack it. He wants to capture your imagination so that you see what he wants you to see instead of what God wants you to see. Do you know in the book of Genesis, I didn't give them this scripture, but God creates the Garden of Eden, puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he tells them, you may eat of anything in this garden, any tree, any fruit, it's all yours except one. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat anything in this garden except one tree. The next thing we see, Satan appears in the garden. And do you know what he says? He sees Adam and Eve and he says, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in this garden? Did you know that? Did he really say you can't eat of any tree? Well, that's not what God said. God said you can have all but one. But Satan's question is, did God 
say? Eve answered correctly. She goes, no. I mean, she answered word for word. She had the letter of the law down. No, we can eat of any tree except one. And he's like, ah, didn't get on that one. Then the enemy goes, well, the only reason he said that is because he knows if you eat of it, then you'll be just like him. And now Eve's thinking, huh. You know the saddest part of that story? She already was. But because of that, she begins to focus on what the enemy was telling her. The first one didn't get her, but the second one got her attention. The second one captured her imagination. Maybe I'm not like God. Maybe Adam was created in his image, but I'm just some kind of a lesser copy of that. Maybe I should eat this apple. And he caught her imagination. You see, the message is called Two Paintings. Because both God and the devil want to communicate to us through our imagination. And they both want to paint a picture of your future. But they're very different paintings. And they are drawing it with a masterful hand. The enemy is a great painter too. But they want to paint two very different pictures of your future. You see, the enemy wants to paint a painting that says, hey, you are going to be held to your past. Your past mistakes will always limit your future. Look at your family. Look at your sin that you did. Look at your lack of education. Look at your lack of skills. Look look at all the stuff that you did. And he's wanting to paint a picture of your past. And God is painting a different picture. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, I think we have that scripture. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine according to the power that's at work within us. When the enemy's painting a picture that you'll be held to your past, God is going, oh, no, no. Your future will look like the power that is at work within you right now. And I sent my son to a cross to die a criminal's death and put your sin on his body so that you don't have to suffer that punishment yourself. And I have a future for you. And I have got something for you that's not dependent on your past. It's dependent on the power that's at work within you right now. And if you'll receive this free gift of salvation that I've given you, if you'll allow my power at work within you by surrendering your heart, it's that power that paints the picture of your future. And he paints the most beautiful picture you could ever possibly imagine. For us, I remember there was a picture painted for us. Romy mentioned it a few years ago when we first kind of stepped out to obey God to what has now become Seashore Church. We had a lot of people that didn't agree with us. Actually, not a lot of people. We had a few people. And the picture they painted was, you will never have friends. You will be completely alone in ministry. And can I tell you, that was a tough painting. But God's painting was, no, no, no. You will find kingdom-minded friends. You will find people that aren't limited in their thinking. And boy, has that happened. I I could fill the night with stories of people that we've connected to in this process that have 
been so timely, so God, and nothing I ever had to work for. I didn't have to go be friendly to find friends. Kingdom-minded people found us because like spirits attract. And so the picture that God had painted for us was very different than what the enemy had painted for us. I don't get mad at the people that said that because you remember the first part? We demolish arguments. We have divine power to defeat arguments and pretensions that set itself up against the knowledge of God. It's not the people that painted that painting. It's the spiritual strongholds on them that are causing them to paint pictures for people that are not God's painting for people. I can't paint your picture. Only God can do that for you. So although the enemy had painted a picture for me, you know what? I did not have to put that painting on my wall. I can't take the brush out of his hand, but I don't have to put his picture on my wall. I don't have to stare at it and look at it and go, that's right, those are all my limitations. I can put whatever picture on my wall that I decide to put on my wall, and I've got at least two paintings to choose from. But I know what I want to set my eyes and my heart on, and it is the painting that according to the power that is at work within me, God can do more than I could ever ask, hope, or imagine. According to the power that's at work within me. God, if I surrender to you my heart, if I just trust, if I keep clean hands and a pure heart, there will be immeasurably more than I could ever ask hope or imagine. And that's the painting that I'm putting on my wall. That's what I'm going to look at every morning when I wake up. It's what I'm going to look at every night when I go to bed. It's going to be what I show people when they come over my house. Come look at my painting. Look how beautiful that is. I don't know why people build whole art museums to the paintings the enemy has made for them. Oh, let me come... Let me tell you about my family. Oh my gosh, look at that. How could anything ever come of me? Man, did I tell you about my last group of friends? Here's, I remember when they let me down. And look over here, this is, this is when, oh my gosh, I, that workplace that I was at, nobody there liked me. There's one over there. And they build museums that feature the wrong artist. I know who's painting. I want to put on my wall. Can I show you a story in the Bible of somebody who learned this lesson? His name is Jacob. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. This is the part that God kind of messed me up on a little bit. Now, uh, where should I, should I explain this story? Let me break into the story. Jacob. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was the one that received the covenant from God, gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. God describes himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And us, by the way, but it shows that God is a generational God. So Abraham, every place he set his foot, God blessed him. Everything he touched, God blessed him, not because of anything Abraham did, just because God loved him and wanted to bless him. We are now a part of the family of Abraham by faith. So the same blessing that we're going to read about Jacob and the same blessing that Abraham have, we can have today because we are descendants of Abraham by faith. The covenant God gave him, we now like benefit from the same covenant fulfilled in Jesus. That's a lot of theology, Old Testament, New, all in one. Have a listen to the podcast and you can straighten it out later. Okay, 
So Jacob um, has this incredible blessing from God, but he also keeps running into some challenges, partly because his name actually means schemer. He's always up to some little side hustle. He's always trying to figure something out, but yet he's a man after God's heart. And so God just keeps blessing this guy. So Jacob ends up working for his uncle named Laban. Now, he works for Laban, but Laban's one of those guys that he keeps making all the same promises but never fulfills them because he knows that his house is being blessed because Jacob is working for him. Like as soon as Jacob comes working for him, the place just explodes. Like the breakthrough actually happens, and he knows it's because Jacob's there, so he wants to keep Jacob around. So he keeps making Jacob empty promises and not fulfilling. Go, oh, give me seven more years. Give me seven more years. And he keeps tricking Jacob. It's funny, the, the trickster becomes tricked. Maybe Jacob brought that on himself. Who knows? But this is where we break into the story. Jacob has been working for his uncle for 14 years. His wages have been changed 10 times. He's just been fulfilled, just one unfulfilled promise after another. That can get a little disappointing after a while, right? So Jacob says to him, as we're going to break into the story, in Genesis chapter 30, verse 29, Jacob said to him, You know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? Uh, he's saying, look, when can I go out on my own? And Laban says, what shall I give you, he asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goats. They will be my wages. Now, let me give you a little hint here. A goat that's born is usually born very black. And when sheep are born, they're usually born very white. They, it is unusual for them to have these kind of blemishes that he's talking about. Like less than 1% of the sheep and the goats would actually have... Um, this condition, this, this, this outward appearance that he's talking about. So for Laban, this is sounding like a pretty good deal. It'd be like somebody coming to you and going, look, um, I took your portfolio from $100,000 to $100 million. When can I go out on my own? Like I've earned you all this money. And you say, well, I want less than 1%. And it's only less than 1% that's actually not very good anyway. I guess financially, maybe that's not a great illustration. I don't know how that would work out. Say you got 12 donuts and somebody actually picks the jelly donut that nobody wants, you know. <laughs> Can never fit. No. Oh, I understand. I like that. So <laughs> these messages are always better the second time, but I never. Anyway. Um, so he tells them. And my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted, or any land that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. That same day he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted. Here goes Laban again. And all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued the rest to, uh, to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Here's Laban again. He just goes, I'll just take whichever ones 
are speckled. And he goes, yeah, that sounds great. And then Laban takes all of them and then moves them three days journey away. He rips them off again. Like, sure, go ahead and do that. Hey, go take all the spotted one. He doesn't even want to give up the least 1% thing he's got. He's just, oh, anybody ever had a boss like that? It's tough. Then he goes, um, are we at verse 37? Is that where we are? Before we read 37, before any of this happened, before Jacob made this proposition, I got a little confession to make. God had already told him in a dream. He showed him a dream and told Jacob, every single one of those sheep and goats, all of them are spotted, speckled, or streaked. God was showing him something that Laban couldn't see. This was a dream. This was a vision. He saw all of Laban's sheep as spotted, speckled, or streaked. So that's why he comes to Laban and he goes, hey, I got a deal. And Laban, who only sees things in the natural, is like, that sounds like a great deal. And I know how to rip you off even from that. But Jacob understands that he's not really fighting against Laban. He's fighting against this spirit, this stronghold that wants to keep him in the wrong place longer than he should. And God is now saying go. Jacob never left until God said go. So this is what Jacob does. He makes this deal. But now he's still stuck with looking after Laban's flock. And now everything he said he was going to get is gone. You ever have a moment when God speaks something to you and you're like, okay, bring it on, Jesus. And then it gets worse. Like, wait a minute. The thing that I thought you were going to multiply is gone. <laughs> like I gave you the five loaves and two fish and now they're gone. Now there's no loaves and fish. I need you to create out of nothing. I know you're good at that, but why'd you just make it harder? Sometimes when you get a vision from God and start to step out in obedience and trust Him, things look worse before they look better. Sometimes you turn down the job offer that promised millions. And you're like, okay, God, here I am. And then your current business starts struggling and you're like, and then you hear the voice. Did God really say? And you start to get a painting painted for you. Don't put that painting on your wall. Verse 37. Jacob, however, took fresh cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches, and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals." Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. 
So the weak animals went to Laban, and the strong ones went to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants. He's got to hire staff and camels and donkeys. You know when you're big, when you've made it, when you got camels and donkeys. He's big time. Now, this story can get a little confusing because it's not very scientific. He took these branches, put them in front of these animals when they made it, and it looked like it made the sheep look like they were spotted, striped, or speckled. That's the purpose of the branches, is that when you look through the branches, you look through and see the animals on the other side, and it looks like the painting that God had drawn for Jacob. Who were the sticks for? I don't want to blow your mind, but putting sticks in front of sheep and having them mate doesn't really make striped sheep. I hate to break that to you, but scientifically... Yes, we're talking about science in church. That doesn't work. And I've heard people preach that here's Jacob again trying to scheme, trying to work out a plan for it to do this. I, I, I would beg to differ. I don't think the sticks were there for the sheep. I think the sticks were there for Jacob. I need to see what God said. Because I'm hearing this voice in my head. This says, did God really say that all these sheep are striped and speckled and spotted? Because even the ones that were just left, and now you're stuck with looking after somebody else's sheep again. And he says, yep, but I'm not putting that painting on my wall. I'm going to put the painting in front of me that God's made for me. I need to see it. I need to see it. And as he saw it, it came to pass. Who's painting are you going to put on your wall? Can I tell you what happened to those sheep? The thing that makes a sheep striped, speckled, or spotted is a recessive gene. A recessive gene. It means you have it, but it's turned off. Is it the moment Jacob believed God for what he told him? God looked at his faith and went, flick, And he flicked on a recessive gene in every one of those sheep. It was there. It had the potential, but it just wasn't switched on. It wasn't activated yet. It required Jacob to believe what God said. And when the enemy says, did God really say, you go, I'm not putting that on my wall. I know what God said. It's why I encourage you to write down the things you thought God had said to you. So that when the enemy goes, did he really say, you go, oh, let me, nope, he did not. Here's the painting. He said that I can be healed. He said that I can have a life that's dependent more on the the, the spirit that's at work with inside me than what happened in my past. And Jacob needed to see what God said. And the thing that's struck me in this life is uh, of living for Jesus is the more I put this painting on my wall, the louder the did God say's voice happens at the same time. The more breakthrough I get in my relationship with God, the stronger the enemy, the opposition becomes but I'm not worried about it. 
He can yell. He can paint all he wants. It's not going on my wall. I've had to learn to be okay with tremendous spiritual breakthrough also comes with tremendous spiritual opposition. I wish I could stand here and preach and tell you, when you surrender your heart to God, your whole life gets better. Nothing ever attacks you. You are impervious to any attack of the enemy, but it's not true. In fact, what I found is I get a whole lot more fiery darts shot at me, but they don't hit me. I hold up my shield of faith. I have my helmet of of salvation, my breastplate of righteousness. It used to be just the tiniest little dart would sink right in. Now I got a lot more darts coming at me, but they're not getting in. Whose painting are you going to put on your wall? When you take the painting that God has for you, I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you and to give you hope on a future. When you put that on the wall, it activates the switch. It flicks on the very thing that he's put on that wall. It requires activation. God's painting, God's promises require activation. And the activation is our faith to trust him, to believe him that what you said will happen regardless of what I see with my natural eyes. I know that if I put your painting on my wall and if I trust you and if I obey you, it will come to pass. And spotted, streaked, And blemished lambs make the strongest sheep. So when Isaiah 61 says the blind, the lame, the the oppressed, the, the prisoner and the captive, they will return to the places long devastated and they'll renew cities. I see spotted, blemished, and streaked lambs going back into these places, but they're strong. And the world looks at them and goes, who would want a spotted lamb? And I go, me. I want a spotted lamb because those are the strong ones. Jacob changed what a spotted lamb looked like because the spotted ones became the strong ones. And everything that Laban thought he had, he was like, you're not spotted? Man, you go back to Laban. That's fine. You can do that because I know what God has said. And everything that God showed him in the dream came to pass. The strongest ones belong to him. Whose painting are you going to put on your wall? There was a moment as we were kind of really trusting God and stepping out in obedience to him and didn't really know what this was going to look like, didn't know if this was even going to be a church. Is this just some kind of revival movement, a prayer movement? I really don't know. I just know that God's called me, us, to obey him, to step out from where we are into a big unknown and just trust him. Teach people to hear him. Teach people to hear God for themselves. It wasn't a whole lot more than that. But he said, I want you to teach people how to hear from me. Got it. And there was a, a place where we were fasting and praying for quite a while. And I was back in the, one of my favorite places in the world, in Seashore State Park. It's a big reason why our church is named Seashore, by the way. I don't know who called it First Landing. It's Seashore State Park, <laughs> if you're local. You always know how local somebody is by whether they call it Seashore or First Landing and whether they say Norfolk, Norfolk, or Norfolk. That's how you know where people are from. And I remember 
I was at probably the furthest point in the park that you can get to from a, a parking lot. And I just sat down and I went, God, I got all these voices coming at me right now. But I need to hear you. I need to hear you. And it was in that place, on Long Creek Trail, sitting at a bench overlooking White Hill Lake. And God showed up in probably the most powerful way I've ever experienced his presence. And he spoke to me and said, it's here. Because the question I was asking was, God, where? Where, where? where do you want us? We'll go anywhere. Warm. <laughs> I said, where? And he goes, it's here. I said, that's not going to go over too well. He said, yeah, but yeah, this is why I brought you here. I've called you here. I said, God, I'm going to need your help. Because there's a lot of other paintings being painted for me right now. And he tells me, if you just keep clean hands and a pure heart, I'm going to part the ways for you. And that's exactly what happened. And so I took a photo of that place. And probably one of the best gifts I've ever gotten is my mom made this for me at Christmas one year. This is the place where God met me. Have you ever been in a place where you had to hear from God? This means nothing to anybody else. But I know it was in that place that God met me. Do you know where this is? It's right by my bedside, leaning against my wall, because this is the first thing I see every morning and every night. Not because it's a beautiful place, it is. Because it's a reminder that he will do exceedingly and abundantly more than I could ever ask, hope, or imagine according to the power that's at work within me. It's funny, but I picked this up last night, was laying in bed looking at it, and I was like, huh, there's a lot of white stripes of poplar trees right here. It actually looks like what Jacob did. And but God began to speak to me again. He said, they're all striped. They're all spotted. They're all speckled. But they're the strong ones. It's you. Whose painting are you going to put on your wall? Would you pray with me? And I'm going to encourage you right now to I 
I don't want this to sound as a heavy. It's not. But you know darn well the picture the enemy's been painting for you. And if you've been putting it on your wall, this is not a heavy, I promise. But I'm going to ask you to repent of what you've put on that wall. And just tell God, this is your father. This is your dad. Say, Father, I repent of putting the wrong picture on my wall. I repent of listening to voices other than yours in my life. And I'm ready to redecorate. Pray this with me. Just in your own words, make your peace with God on this. Because the word repentance doesn't mean you're an evil, rotten sinner. To repent means to change the way you think. But you can't do that with your flesh. Repentance is an issue of your spirit. And we repent by surrendering that area to God. So God, I surrender all the paintings that are on my wall that were not made by your hand. And Lord, help me to see the future that you have created for me. Help me to see the power that's at work within me. And in the name of Jesus, I cut off every voice that is not his. In Jesus' name, you have the authority to do that. That's part of the weapons you've been given. You can cut off the voice of the enemy in your life. And in Jesus' name, I rebuke the enemy. Come on, you rebuke him now. In Jesus' name, I rebuke the enemy and his voice in my life. I will cling to what is good. Thank you, Lord, that's the power that's at work within me. And right now, Jesus, I pray, flip the switch. Flip the switch. Let the recessive gene of mercy, of love, of grace, of glory be switched on now in Jesus' name. Our future is in you. No longer will we curse the stripe that makes us different from everyone else. No longer will we wish we didn't have the spots. It's those stripes and those spots that qualify us for the activation of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Flip the switch. Flip the switch, God. And let your power be at work in us. That we can go back to the places long devastated. That we can renew cities because of what's at work within us. Renew us again. Revive us again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.